financial transactions or the fancier white collar version of your cousin pulling you aside at Thanksgiving to ask you if you can spot them a few hundred bucks to fix their car. But, you know, for like multinational corporations and admitted tax executives, your M&E group is a little like a family. When someone's in trouble, everyone's got to pull together and figure out how to get to the end of the month or uh, the uh, fiscal year, I guess. The difference is, of course, no foreign tax agency is going to slap you with a transfer pricing adjustment for helping your cousin fix their car. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. And on today's episode, we're learning every subsidiary's favorite love languages, capital structures, loans, cash pooling, hedging, financial guarantees, captive insurance and reinsurance, and everyone's favorite long walks on the beach. It might depend on what jurisdiction that beach is located, but we'll be covering that as well on today's episode. After all, there is new OECD guidance on financial transactions, and that is the major headline going into today's episode. To pull apart that guidance, we have cross-border solutions own transfer pricing solutions engineer Doug Darling with us back on the program to discuss. In speaking of having a very lucrative career that will help pay for your cousin's car fix when they hit you up on Thanksgiving, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout this show. Send all three to the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Introducing your partner to your parents. That's a big step. Introducing country-by-country reporting rules in Zambia. That's just another day in transfer pricing. The new regulations titled Statutory Instrument SI Number 117 of 2020, very catchy title, went into effect on January 1st, 2021 in a line with the OECD's BEPS Action 13. As for the nitty-gritty details, a tax resident ultimate or surrogate parent entity is required to submit a country-by-country report if the consolidated revenue tops 4.795 million Zambia Quacha or 218,130,000 U.S. dollars. The report must be filed within 12 months of the group's last day of the reporting financial year, and as in other countries, it provides the tax authority with a company's financial nuts and bolts in each jurisdiction the multinational operates. This looks like naming each constituent entity in the country of tax residents, showing the nature of each entity's business, and identifying if the country of incorporation differs from the tax residents. While Zambia hasn't yet signed on the multilateral competent authority agreement on the exchange of country-by-country reports, it is taking steps in the right direction to enforce compliance. Until then, constituent entities will have to file their own country-by-country report with the Commissioner General, which means it's critical that country-by-country reports echo the information found in the local and master files. The days of transfer pricing mismatches are numbered, at least in the Netherlands. The Dutch government held an online consultation earlier this month to discuss the application of the arm's-length principle, the goal to come to a unilateral solution on international mismatches and resulting double non-taxation. The initiative began in April 2020, when the Dutch Established Advisory Committee on the Taxation of Multinationals submitted a report with suggestions on how to revise the Dutch corporate income tax. If enacted, Dutch corporate taxpayers involved in international-related party transactions are going to be spinning faster than the country's windmills. The consultation report provides that if a transaction isn't arm's length, a downward adjustment of the tax base will only be applied if there is a corresponding upward adjustment of the counterparty, and it's on the taxpayer to show that the corresponding adjustment is reasonable. The consultation is open for commentary until April 2nd and is expected to take effect on January 1st, 2022. From stimulus packages to extended unemployment to bailouts, the U.S. government has made a valiant effort to keep the nation's head above water during the pandemic, and for that, we say thank you. The message from the IRS, however, seems to be don't mistake our kindness for weakness. The IRS is honing in on companies' transfer pricing treatments of government assistance and distribution of COVID-related costs. John Hughes, director of the IRS's Advanced Pricing and Mutual Agreement Program, but not the director of Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club, considers it a, quote, 
burgeoning issue, unquote, as it becomes more of an issue in cross-border tax disputes. Multinationals are having difficulty accounting for government assistance like wage subsidies when it comes to calculating arm's length range. So how can MEs demonstrate that they've been using government assistance appropriately? It boils down to effort. Tax authorities want to see businesses trying to find reasonable allocation of income, even in the most unreasonable times. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So getting things started, Doug, thank you so much for being with us. Diving right in, what is the purpose of the guidance on financial transactions from the OECD? Well, clearly, the issue guidance is intended to help tax jurisdictions and administrations and multinational entities evaluate whether the conditions of their intercompany commercial and financial relations satisfies the basic arm length principle. I would say that this is one area that clearly has received the least amount of attention over time, you know, historically. Right. So it's just now just a matter of them getting around to it. And, you know, these guidelines are intended to do that, to put some, put a framework around that to work with both the multinationals and the tax administrators to, to get to that arm's length determination. So we've got the larger international context here. We've got the frame. When we talk about financial transactions, let's be exacting. What type of transactions are we referring to? Numerous ones, I think. The primary ones are, to sum them up, you're talking about primarily you know, capital structure, equity, capital, loans, intercompany loans. That's, that's where you see this appear the most probably. The other place you see it appear a lot are the cash pooling, intercompany cash pooling and hedging arrangements that are particularly done by treasury function, the treasury function. And it's also meant to give some guidance to that treasury function within that multinational entity. And then other areas that it touches upon, which, you know, are, are, I see less and less of relevance, but not irrelevant are, you know, the area of financial guarantees captive insurance and reinsurance arrangements. So that's meant to, you know, these guidelines are meant to cover kind of the gamut of all those different types of financial transactions, intercompany. In returning to the framework, the OECD delivered final guidance on financial transactions the first time the OECD published guidance on financial transactions. Can you give us a general overview on the guidance? Yeah, the guidance is meant to put forth a framework for assessing the arm's length nature of these intercompany financial transactions, which hadn't existed before. It retains a lot of the other OECD guideline concepts for the other transactions, particularly the concept of the actual delineation of the transaction, if if, if that phrase sounds familiar, breaking down the transaction, the parties, the risks, the functions, and applies that in the intercompany financial transaction arena. It also is helpful and it provides examples. So it's not unlike other guidance that we've seen for tangible goods, for example, but it now tries to apply a lot of those same concepts, more precisely the actual delineation of the transaction concept to the intercompany financial transaction area. So again, it is guidelines, it's OECD guidelines, and it's not law just a suggestion. And so for it to be law, it's going to have to be legislatively adopted in in jurisdictions. But I I see that happening for the most part, just so the tax jurisdictions now have something to hang their hat on in this 
area of transfer pricing. Of course, we've got that larger context. You mentioned that phrase, accurate delineation of the transaction. Let's dive in a little bit more there. What does that end up meaning on the ground floor? Well, on the ground floor, it, it means an extra compliance burden for the taxpayer is the practical part of it. But in essence, it's a total examination of a transaction, the examination of the business purpose for the transaction, commercial rationality for the transaction, and the terms and conditions of a transaction. You know, it just kind of, it's a holistic approach to that type of transaction to break it down into its specific components to see generally first it would make sense and then two is it really arm's length once you apply the regular parts of transfer pricing you know uh, comparables benchmarking etc so it is just breaking down that transaction into its separate parts to try and understand it for transfer pricing purposes and to uphold or disallow it is just that it's it's an additional exercise that the taxpayers have to go through and you know historically multinational entities focused on their pricing and less so this holistic approach, right? Mm -hmm. But this particular area, I'm just going to speak from experience for multinational entities, the financial transactions area is one of the least paid attention to. It's also one that typically for most, unless you're a financing type multinational where that's your bread and butter, it was really kind of glossed over. So this is just making you put your feet to the fire and give at the same time type of attention and analysis that you would with your other intercompany transactions, like tangible goods and services. Now, Doug, uh, I want to ask a question for our 101 listeners out there. We we run the Transfer Pricing University courses here at Cross Border, and I I tend to have a sixth sense for for what those folks would ask. And I just want to be clear about kind of the nature of financial transactions and and, and what you said a moment ago, which was that financial transactions tend to be the least paid attention to. Um, And while I I, I get that can be true in this specific context, and I'd like you to explain a little bit along those lines, if that's how you feel, uh, you know, for our one on one listeners, There's a lot of overlap with the FAR analyses, and given how financial transactions are at the heart of intracompany agreements, and therefore a huge part of transfer pricing. So just to put a finer point on on what you mean by that, go ahead. Well, I I would say financing aspects may be part of every agreement. For example, you know, your tangible goods intercompany agreements has aspects of payment, payment terms, etc. But they don't focus on interest, interest rates, things that are exclusively to the financial transaction sector. So while there is a financial aspect to all the other types of intercompany transaction agreements, that isn't the focus. Whereas in this area, you know, the focus is on that, those interest terms, those credit ratings, repayment dates, maturity dates, all these things on a financial transaction intercompany agreement are now going to be predominant. They're going to be what the agreement centers on. The OECD talks about addressing certain corporate treasury practices applied to intra-group treasury transactions. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think they're trying to address specific types of treasury functions like how centralized is the treasury function? How decentralized is the treasury function? How much risk is the treasury function doing? What is its add to the value chain analysis and how involved it is in these separate intercompany transactions. But more specifically, I think the Treasury oversees a lot of things, you know, the intercompany loans, the hedging and then the cash pooling. I think they're trying to get out what's the Treasury's role in this in the value chain analysis. So I think as far as just the Treasury function, a lot of these financial transactions in a company occur without active involvement in the transaction with the treasury function of the multinational entity, although it may oversee it, things like, you know, cash pooling arrangements, the treasury may not have be an actual party to or anything like that. So that's, it's done by, you know, different affiliates. So when it comes to the treasury uh, department, that's how this plays into it. And what should be considered in terms of credit ratings? You know, credit rating depends on, you know, a combination of, of different things, quantitative and 
and qualitative factors, right? And there could be some, you know, the credit worthiness between borrowers with the same credit rating, debt equity earnings, debt equity ratios, uh, debt earnings. These are things that should go into the credit rating analysis. Another, you know, factor in the credit rating analysis is whether you're given the credit worthiness of members of the group versus the ultimate parent entity, right? Because typically it's the ultimate parent entity that is going to be, you know, on the hook for a lot of things. Startup entities this is another consideration credit ratings and can have an impact. Those are those special, special kind of situations. Right. If your cousin's credit rating isn't amazing when you're trying to fix their car, maybe dad's is? Some industries, right, can have an impact on the different credit rating and worthiness. So it's not, you know, like anything else in, in transfer pricing, it's a gray area. There's no one set of rules, but these are just some of the factors you can, you can take into account because every scenario and situation is going to be different and you're going to have to just simply weigh what are the most impactful things. For example, you know, the startup versus, you know, the industry and how impactful that is. So those are some considerations when you come down to the credit rating of that multinational entity or a group. And that's kind of these, these things are the kind of things being pointed out by the guidelines, right? That's what's helpful for the guidelines. I think right. these things were easy to overlook. And as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the financial transaction area typically gets the least amount of attention in, in the multinational. And so you're now getting some things to think about, some tools to use. So I think the guidelines are very helpful in that respect, because I think these are things that would, wouldn't necessarily occur to the in-house corporate transfer pricing professional. That is, unless you know their core business is a financing, you know, a, a capital division, you know, G Capital, for example. These type of things in their transfer pricing, they would be much more astute. And what about interest rates and guarantee fees? How should they be benchmarked? First and foremost, you know, to answer your question, bank quotes aren't valid for benchmarking for transfer pricing purposes, right? Interest rates and guarantee fees should be established by traditional, reliable OECD transfer pricing methods and in, in reference to third parties. It's not unlike the other area areas of transfer pricing where you're going to try and maybe build that comparable, that benchmarking. Interest rates, a good suggestion in transfer pricing methods, speaking of that, is using an internal cup or external cup if they're available. But internal cups, if you have interest rates with other third-party lenders that you do business with, you've kind of established the beginning at least of a cup. So while we, we look at interest rates from that perspective, any transfer pricing approach, that cut or cup is always the most reliable and the best place to start if it's applicable. So it's just simply easy to say that they should follow the other accepted valid transfer pricing methods and approach. And in reference to third parties where you don't have an internal reference. And interrupting very quickly for our second CPE code word, and that code word is treasury, as in treasury functions, also another form of financial transactions that includes intragroup loans, cash pooling, and hedging. Don't worry, we're pulling out all the 101 terms on you. Again, our second CPE code word is treasury, as in treasury functions. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Let's talk about intercompany loans likely to be common transactions in fiscal year 2020. How does the OECD suggest approaching those? Practitioners are traditionally focused on on a borrower's ability 
to, to repay in terms of an agreement. While the OECD emphasizes as well realistic alternatives on both sides of the transaction, right? You know, lenders should perform the essential risk monitoring and control activities and make, you know, corresponding decisions, passive lenders versus active lenders. That's a good concept to bring out or to draw out. The example of company A in a multinational entity lending to company B in a multinational entity, whereas company A does not have a very good or worthy credit rating. And ultimately, it's going to be entity P, which is the ultimate parent entity that may have to guarantee that loan. In that situation, that company A that is the the lender uh, may only be entitled to a pretty risk-free rate of return, right? Because they're not really bearing the risk. So those are some of the factors that the OECD encourages you know, to, to look at. No situation is the same. So it's those risk factors, really, I think, that in that area that they're trying to get to. And the OECD guidance emphasizes that in terms of setting up intragroup financing arrangements, functional and financial substance of the party should be considered. Can you elaborate on that? I think it's a common theme with the OECD that only the entities, only those entities with, with that functional substance and relative risk control and ability to perform decision-making and ability to have the capacity to take on debt or to take the risk for repaying loans should assume those lending roles. That way, they're less subject to debate or less subject to argument against. But if you align those entities that have, it's similar to the DEMBI function, if you will, right. that, that those entities that have the ability and bear the risk, that have the appropriate substance, should be involved in these financial transaction decisions and party to them. Otherwise, you're asking you know, for them to be struck down on basis of not having the substance. Mm. So it's in perfect alignment with the other areas of transfer pricing, particularly that DIMPI function where it's all about having the substance functionality risk-wise and, and having the assets to be able to be in that role. Which brings us to methodology, and I think this is advice that you know our listeners can put right in their pockets after this podcast, but which methods are used to determine the arm's length interest rate of intragroup loans? There's a variety. I mentioned this early, and I'll go reemphasize that. You know, The most reliable transfer pricing method is a cup. It's a comparable that you have. You have this transaction within the whole point of the arm's length standard, right, is what would the transaction look like? with an unrelated party, an independent party? Would you enter into that transaction with such in that arrangement? So if you have those type of third-party lending arrangements, you should use those. That could be your cut. Bonds, loans, debentures, commercial papers, any subset, right, of financial transactions. If you can establish that cut, then I think that's first and foremost your, your best go-to. Cost of funds, is another one. It, it reflects the borrowing costs incurred by the lender and raising you know, the funds to lend in the first place. It does add expense. The expenses of arranging the loan are baked in, servicing the loan, and, and that could involve a risk premium to reflect various economic factors in addition to a, a profit margin to reflect a reasonable rate of return. Other methods, you know, they're used are credit default swaps, which, which are used to calculate a risk premium in economic modeling. If reliable cups aren't available, then you're talking about you know other economic models, credit ratings, Moody's, and all these can result in a, in a variety of different outcomes. And so I think, you know, like any other intercompany transaction that you're trying to establish your arm's length, you should have a corroborative method, right? So you may be able to, to pick and choose out of these, but there's enough there that you should be able to establish a corroborative method. And if you're unable to, then I think you need to rethink the terms of the, the transaction and, and reassess it. And what are the methods for financial guarantees? Oh, you know, when you, when you go back, and I always like to be with that cup, it can be difficult because of sufficiently comparable transactions, right? Financial guarantees, there's no set rules. It's a one-off type of thing. You're going to have trouble meeting the comparability 
aspect of a cup, truly establishing that they are the different transaction is, is truly comparable. You know, a yield approach is, is often thrown around. It tries to quantify at least that the benefit you know, that the guaranteed party receives from the guarantee in terms of, of lower interest rate, right? So you're attaching that rate of return or the yield to that guarantee. And if somebody's guaranteeing that loan, you know, maybe you're entitled to, to less of a yield or less of a return. You know, this yield approach, another way to, to kind of explain it, this is the term that transfer pricing professionals will often use is the spread, right? That's the spread between the interest rate that would have been paid by the borrower without the guarantee and the interest rate payable with the guarantee. And I think where you see this spread concept quite a bit or most often applied is in the area of cash pooling arrangements, right? Where your cash pool header, earns the spread, which is that difference in interest rates between funds on deposit and funds on loan. You know, when you say the yield approach, it's just maybe anonymous with, you know, a spread. So that's how you would calculate that. The cost approach quantifies the cost expected by the guarantor in the case of a default. You're trying to quantify the cost expected by the guarantor to incur. It sets the minimum fee the guarantor would be willing to accept. So, you know, I think when you're looking at financial guarantees, that's an animal in and of itself but it is still just a subset within the, the financial transaction world. And in that context, what about bank letters or opinions? Can they be used to determine arm's length pricing in terms and conditions? Yeah, it'd be nice, <laughs> you know, because everybody's got a banker friend, you know, and you, you can massage that into some sort of opinion, but no, you know, they don't represent actual transactions between a borrower and a lender. You know, they're just assumptions. It's nothing that you can, delineate the actual transaction with so to speak so no you stay away from bank letters and opinions although that would be nice Mm. which leaves us to treasury functions what about the oecd's guidance has to say on treasury functions yeah not surprisingly it falls in line with a lot of you know the other areas of types of transactions that you know the treasury function is expected to receive an arm's length fee for its coordination activities it could be, you know, a markup of cost, a net cost plus, some sort of return for that. And it is a valuable function. So the key is to determine how valuable it is in that organization. How much does it add to the value chain? Is a treasury function centralized and all the marching orders come down from that? Or is it decentralized transfer treasury functions that are maybe regional or embedded within, you know, different affiliates. And what all do they do? Do they do they participate in hedging? That's, that's always a, an interesting topic. So that would, if they're involved in hedging activities, that would just add to the value they bring to the table, in which case, you know, their return would be measured appropriately and, and increased appropriately. So, you know, they're, they're usually just in the form of support services, as I said, in the main value. Other areas may be helpful when talking about the treasury function and the value and the, their rate of return. Specifically, meaning the intra-group services guidance, Chapter 7 of the OECD guidelines, because I see certainly the, the potential for overlap and crossover in those areas because the treasury function may not actually be part of the financial transaction, the loan or the cash pulling arrangement. It is overseeing those perhaps, and in that form, it's more of a, you know, a support service function. That's what we get out of the treasury function aspect Mm. of these guidelines. And I've seen that, you know, in practice, both ways that the treasury functions highly centralized and highly involved in the financial day-to-day. I think that's the key of the treasury function is it's the day-to-day oversight and management of the financial dealings of the multinational, whereas it's the financial team of that multinational that looks more to the long-term financing strategies, right? Right. And then the Treasury Department will just implement those and perhaps monitor those. So I think that's the key to understand about that is much like a lot of other service functions, support services, it is that day-to-day oversight and management, which its focus is. 
right, that TLC. Well, I think we've given our audience a, a round introduction to financial transactions, how we, the OECD is looking at this going forward. But let's go a little deeper baseball here. You've been a transfer pricing advisor your career. As a transfer pricing advisor, what do you take away from the new guidance? The same thing I would take away from all the other guidance. The before BEPS tax legislation was less clear less extensive, more open to interpretation. And quite frankly, the tax auditors were still not, didn't have the technical expertise, at least not in all the areas. With the guidelines, you've given them roadmaps, right? As well as the taxpayer. So it's maybe a benefit and detriment to both. But with these guidance, you know, you have terms, you have conditions, you have actual factors to look at. So I think it can make both a taxpayer and multinational auditors jobs a lot easier, but it gives less flexibility and maybe that's greater predictability. Maybe that's a good thing. It offers and suggests different possibilities, how to structure types of financial transactions, something that, you know, maybe in-house tax practitioner had not thought of. And so this could be helpful in that way. They can find different results with different approaches. It's not a one size fits all, but Again, I think one byproduct of all the guidelines is in in having these framework and rules, it does open the door to more controversy. It does, like I said, give the auditor more of a roadmap, whereas maybe they were flying blind or by the seat of their pants in this area. And so the main message or the main takeaway is these types of intercompany transactions need to be documented and substantiated and supported just as much or equally as so as the other types of intercompany transactions, the tangible goods, the services, and need to also need to be aligned with country-specific regulations. I think the specific country regulations are not going to vary greatly from the OECD in this area, although in the future they might, because what we've seen in like in the least tangible goods, the country-specific rules and regulations, you know, they've started to be hyper-localized. Right. They took the OECD right. framework and then hyper-localized. And so it's critical that you customize your documentation to, to those local rules and regulations. I think that's the future of the financial transactions as well. I just think it's further along in the process. But nonetheless, I've read so many you know TP reports and studies when it comes to financial transactions. The approach is always less is better because it was harder to explain, it was harder to justify Mm-hmm. And a lot of internal treasury practitioners simply didn't know what their internal financial transactions consisted of. And so you always saw a paragraph or two, but as much as anything, you was try to say as little about it as possible. Mm-hmm. And then if you're asked about it, then, then you talk about it. That's asking for, for trouble and that's yeah. leaving risk on the table, but that's the fact of it. Transfer pricing documentation of the intercompany financial transactions was bare, if not if not completely absent. So right. now that the OECD has put a stake in the ground and said, here's what this is about, here's what you need to do, you have less and less of an excuse right. for, for not being thorough in covering it. So yeah, it's just uh, it's another, you know, compliance burden on the taxpayer, but it's it's necessary. And depending on your narrative, it could help you out because there's it, it more be. of, an, of a narrative to tell. Absolutely. You could have best in class financial transaction framework in place. Yeah. And you're, you're just not documenting it because you don't know and understand it. You don't have the resources. This is a very unique area within transfer pricing. It's not one that a lot of attention is paid to. It's not one that a lot of people... Even consultants specialize in. There's usually, you know, in my experience when I was one of the big four within that transfer pricing group um, of maybe 20 people, one or two people really were knowledgeable about this area. And they did all of the documentation or planning studies or consulting in this area. So it's now come out of the darkness with these guidelines and can no longer be ignored like it probably had been in the past. I know art metaphors are becoming increasingly popular in transfer pricing, you know, transfer pricing being an art, not a science, but it almost sounds like we have some more colors to play with on the palette. So that can change the picture that you're painting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It is giving you more options. It is laying out the options. You might've thought they were limited and it may be eye-opening to some, 
uh, probably to a lot if they really read these and understand what is what is in the guidelines. So I would agree with that analogy. Yeah. You know, maybe it's, it's for the better and not for the worse. Yes. I know we'll be in trouble when we reach the point in transfer pricing people have when they go to the museum and say, ah, oh, my kid can paint that when they go through a report. And if it just looks like, ah, oh, my kid could have put this together, but it's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the way we're it's in been trouble. To, yeah. That's the way this has been handled up to this point. I would, I would, have to, I would have to say, so, and I'm, I've been guilty of it myself, you know, it's yes. like, okay, well, yes, for the art fans. And, 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 and quite frankly, part of that is because of the volumes or maybe yeah. the, the dollar amounts at stake are not the same as those tangible goods, are not the same as those intangibles, particularly, even services. So unless you are that finance type company where that is your core business activity, its role in the total piece of the pie, I think was was much less than the others. And so that's no justification to ignore it totally, but that was easy to to do based on just that alone, its impact on the total, total revenue stream or right. total, what do you want to say? Piece of the value chain. A bigger piece of the pie, of course. Yes, bigger Doug, piece of the pie. Yes. And interrupting for the final time with our third and last CPE code word, and that code word is financial, as in financial guarantees. Again, our third and final CPE code word is financial, as in financial guarantees yet another form of financial transactions. And we're just going to give a brief summary of today's episode because financial transactions can get very, very complicated. But the purpose of new guidance from the OECD on financial transactions is intended to help tax administrations and multinationals evaluate whether the conditions of commercial and financial transactions between associated entities satisfy the arm's length principle. OECD guidelines are themselves not law. They have to be adopted by tax administrations to become law. When we talk about financial transactions, what type of transactions are we referring to? Those are capital structures, treasury functions, including intragroup loans, cash pooling and hedging, financial guarantees, captive insurance and reinsurance. The OECD delivered final guidance on financial transactions. The first time the OECD published guidance on financial transactions which now all becomes chapter 10 of the OECD guidelines. It retains many of the concepts introduced in the discussion draft called the OECD public discussion draft on financial transactions, AKA the discussion draft, potentially leading to more aggressive challenges by tax authorities. Again, countries have to adopt these guidelines for these laws to be official, and they don't always do that. They also tend to riff on it themselves. One point, that the OECD brings up repeatedly is the accurate delineation of the transaction. This means evaluating its treatment as a debt or a loan or equity or capital contribution. Also to examine the business purpose, commercial rationality of terms and conditions of a transaction. It means at the bottom line, end of the day, a compliance burden for taxpayers. Historically, multinationals focused on only pricing under the assumption of the way the transaction was structured, including terms and conditions, would be acceptable to tax authorities. And that assumption is no longer valid. Tax authorities have been successfully challenging the pricing of financial transactions by delineating and recharacterizing financial transactions, including reassessing the contractually agreed terms and conditions, a new term sheet for transfer pricing purposes. So the OECD essentially recognizing that while third party financial transactions are often the results of various commercial considerations in an intragroup context, these arrangements could be for tax purposes. Making an accurate delineation, multinationals should consider contractual terms of the transaction, along with functions, assets, risks assumed by each party in the transaction, economic circumstances of the parties, and financial markets when the transaction was entered into, business strategies pursued by the parties to the transaction, and analyze the transaction from the position of both the lender and the borrower. The OECD also talks about addressing certain corporate treasury practices applied to intragroup treasury transactions. They suggest that multinationals address and document profitability level of financial group companies, treasury centers, and cash pool leaders inside the group. As in, is the profit in line with what would be expected given functions performed? Entities not exposed to financial risks are expected to report routine profits or cost plus reward. 
Group treasury companies engaged in external and intercompany financial transactions performing complex treasury functions and exposed to risks may be entitled to higher profits. As credit ratings go, they should be determined for each company inside the group in intra-group arrangements, taking into account standalone creditworthiness and the impact of the rating on the willingness of the parent to support the entity. Bank opinions or quotes aren't valid for benchmarking for transfer pricing purposes. They're thought of as assumptions. Interest rates and guarantee fees should be established by OECD transfer pricing methods and in reference to third parties. On intercompany loans, practitioners have traditionally focused on the borrower's ability to repay in terms of agreement. The OECD emphasizes realistic alternatives on both sides of the transaction. The lender should perform essential risk monitoring and control activities and make corresponding decisions. Passive lenders may be restricted to a risk-free rate of return. Multinationals should also consider the level of implicit support due to membership in a group when estimating credit ratings. The OECD guidance emphasizes that in terms of setting up intergroup financing arrangements, functional and financial substance of the parties should be considered. Basically, that's saying that only entities with functional substance and relevant risk control functions, performing decision-making functions and controlling risk associated with investing in the financial asset, and those that assume financial risks are entitled to more than a risk-free return. If the lending entity lacks one of those elements, then it gets a risk-free return. It's important to look at the financing behavior of the M&E group when looking at specific terms applied to the intercompany loan. The comparable uncontrolled price or cup method tends to be favored in determining the arm's length interest rate of an intracompany loan. Cost of funds is also popular, reflects the borrowing costs incurred by the lender in raising the funds to lend. And it adds in the expenses of arranging the loan in relevant costs incurred in servicing the loan. Also a risk premium to reflect the various economic factors plus a profit margin. Tends to also be applied to intermediaries. Other methods include credit default swaps and economic modeling especially when cups are not available for that last one. For financial guarantee methods, the cup is also popular, can be difficult to apply because of sufficiently comparable transactions. The yield approach quantifies that the benefit that the guaranteed party receives from the guarantee in terms of lower interest rates. It also calculates the spread of the interest rate that would have been payable by the borrower without the guarantee and the interest rate payable with the guarantee. It also provides the maximum fee a borrower would be willing to pay for the guarantee. There's also the cost approach. It quantifies the cost expected by the guarantor in case of a default by the borrower. Also sets the minimum fee the guarantor would be willing to accept. And when it comes to treasury functions, the OECD expects treasury entities to receive an arm's length fee for their coordination activities. Treasury functions will usually be support services to the main value creation of the group. Guidance on intragroup services, that's chapter 11 of the OECD guidelines, also may be applicable. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Doug Darling once again in the hot seat for my favorite part of the program. It's a rapid-fire round of questions we call What We Want to Know. Doug is actually no stranger to this game, but we have come up with new questions uh, for Doug to answer. Some a little bit more COVID, past the time oriented. Maybe, maybe this can get us through the home stretch. But always question one, Doug, are you ready? Yes, yes. Fire away. The actual question one for now. The first thing I'm going to do once the world is COVID safe is? Burn my masks. <laughs> no no special locations? No no, no go-to vocation? I'm on the beach here where I live now. And in the <laughs> that's that's one you're... thing that uh, COVID's done well for me is allowed me to remote, remote uh, work. Yeah. And that's from the beach. Oh, amen. Oh, I'm jealous, especially in, in Peekskill, New York, which has a beautiful view of the Hudson Valley, but I'm still jealous of everybody who gets a beach. Um, now, that sounds like a really, really great way to pass your time in quarantine. Do you have like a favorite show on top of that or or another perhaps for all of us who don't have a beach in our backyard? Mm. Is there a way you've passed the time? Yeah, I've done some binge watching of Netflix. I'm guilty. Particularly a show called Peaky Blinders. This is going to be the recommendation that does it for me because I've been holding out. So if you if you want to sell me on Peaky Blinders right now, I am all ears. It is binge watching worthy. Oh, amen. I do love Celian Murphy. Uh, everything he's, I didn't even know he was like Scottish till the other day when I saw him on on uh, late night with Seth Meyers. But uh, I know I I've never seen him be not yes. incredible in anything I've seen him in. It, it, it's it's not for the faint of heart, um, and, and it's raw, but very entertaining and very, um, just that very, very, very Yes, yes. I, I think that is an important... If you take, if you take it for what it's... Yes, worth. I think the, the violence factor is is an important warning. Uh, my, my future father-in-law tried to sell me on The Last Kingdom, and I put it on in a Sunday afternoon. I didn't really know it was really going to come out the gates with, like, Game of Thrones-level gore. And I wasn't quite in the mood. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a historical show. <laughs> but uh, that be that as it may, we're all probably ordering more takeout than ever. COVID leaves me completely wiped. Do you have a preferred takeout order in these dark times? Anything Thai. Uh, big, big Thai food fan. Big, uh, I like spicy things. I like chilies. Um, and and uh, Thai has that, that, that element of Thai, hot but sweet at the same time. Kind of yeah. satisfies two cravings. So yeah, my go-to takeout is definitely thing Thai, basil. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I've um, uh, there's a local Indian place around me, and I've never been an Indian food person. My my fiance is, and then it would, we just moved next door to this place, so now it's just Indian all the time, which is expensive, but they they do give you a lot. They give you a lot for that for that money. Lots of curry. Yeah, lots of lots of curry. Uh, you're new to cross border solutions, but you have a long storied history in transfer pricing. Does having a closer relationship with technology here bring you a different perspective on transfer pricing as a discipline? Um, no, you, honestly, not really. Um, I've, I've always been a tech junkie. Um, for for with my transfer pricing, I, I have done my own benchmarking analyses, like with the BBD. Um, and so I've always been very tech oriented about it. But what I will say is that, um, that cross borders has opened my eyes that there is a better way of, of doing the technology, you know, and that with the AI technology of Fiona and, and letting it do the heavy lifting. Um, and then you can sit back and refine. So, uh, I think that's what did it open my eyes that it, that it was a better way, uh, not necessarily a new way. Of course. That we had uh, Mimi Song, uh, our, our chief economist, on, on the show just a couple of episodes ago, which happens every couple of episodes because, as with you, she's just such a great guest. Uh, but we were just kind of getting into it over books. It, that kind of changed our minds about transfer pricing. It kind of took us everywhere. We talked a little bit of, even about science fiction. Is there a book out there, economics, even fiction, that's made you think about tax differently, transfer pricing differently? No, not not differently. Um, there's a book out there that made me think of economics um, a little bit differently, which economics is obviously the, at the heart of transfer pricing. And that's a that's a book. And I'm sure people have heard of it called Freakonomics. Ah, uh, yes. 
taking a taking a, 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 a look at daily life through the lens kind of of economics. Um, and it's a very enjoyable read and one you wouldn't when you pick it up you wouldn't expect it. It's it is just um, um, it is different and a, a different way of thinking about things. So I would recommend that. Uh, and, I, and I know transfer pricing can be extremely big picture, even outside of the international tax dimension, but it's very, very hard to sometimes see how transfer pricing, um, you know, works uh, on the ground level until something like COVID happens and we see all of the supply chains go awry. We we get all that data from the ground and we kind of see there is a dimension that's a, a affected at the kind of the microcosmic level. And I'm really interested to see, I, I'm a big fan of the Freakonomics brand. I, I, I enjoy the podcast a lot, even as a guy in this industry, but I'm very interested to see what they have to say, especially with all the COVID fall, fallout. I think this is going to be something we're going to be looking at as a controlled experiment in economics for a very, very, very long time among many other things yeah, that's a good that's a that's a way to put it, it, it controlled <laughs> and not controlled right i mean it, it it's, it's it's kind of both but i think you're right it's uh it, it's it's going to be interesting when this all shakes out yeah because i just personally i've seen the value chain and the supply chain interruptions um with, with some of my work and um it's it's caused some rethinking of things and i think you'll see some reorganizing and rearranging of certain pieces within the multinational. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure there's, I am dead certain there's going to be, if they reissue it or do any kind of post COVID uh, free economics, there has to be some crazy chapters about work from home and the things they never, uh, no one ever expected to take off this, that, or the other thing with everybody working from home. Uh, I, I don't think that no, I, I think Zoom might be altogether too obvious. Yeah, no, that'll be dissected extensively in books and movies, <laughs> you know, whatever that working from home exper uh, experience, that will be, uh, that will be good fodder for books and, uh, and discussions for a long time. Amen. Amen. And further discussions we will have on this podcast, Doug, thank you again so much for being with us. And we want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. While you're there, don't forget to check out our short form transfer pricing in the news podcast. That's the Fiona Show, hot off the press. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. The interview portion of today's episode was edited by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Stay safe, everyone. Wear a mask. We'll see each other very soon if you do. And until next week, we'll catch you then.